any career in a creative endeavor, you're gonna take a lot of stand and eight counts. The, the truth is, as long as you're really doing this work for the right reasons, you, you can fight through those things. And I've been able to, and I, the reason I share all of it is, if someone's out there and they have some dream that most people think is unrealistic or crazy, and they're willing to work with incredible rigor, discipline, and focus to achieve it, then they're my people. Those are my people. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Tourist Information. My guest this week is Brian Koppelman, who is a writer, showrunner, director, producer. You know him from his involvement in films such as Ocean's 13, Rounders, The Illusionist, The Lucky Ones, Solitary Man. And, of course, he is the co-creator, showrunner, and executive producer of Showtime's Billions. Um, Brian is, uh, you know... You come to his work and just find so much rich material, and I love what he does with his podcast. Also, the moment he gets so many interesting characters, such unexpected access to people. He's just such a curious, dynamic person and just fascinated by people and the culture and, uh, and then how it translates into his art. Um, he's also really active on Twitter, so I, I just reached out to him a while ago to see if we could just have a little conversation about where boxing fits in to his psyche. And uh, turns out he's been following it for a long time, pretty passionately, and, and also professional wrestling. And I thought it was an interesting time to talk about that intersection, given that um, boxing is moving more and more into a kind of wrestling spectacle of novelty fights, which after Mike Tyson and Roy Jones made $80 million for kind of playing tag for 16 minutes worth of quote-unquote action, um, this is going to become increasingly viable with, I think, the sideshow tent becoming the main attraction of the circus of what boxing is, which is a strange place to be. So it was a lot of fun to talk to Brian, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with Brian Koppelman, this week's guest on Tourist Information. Mr. Brian Koppelman, when did wrestling and boxing become shared obsessions of yours early on? When did it enter your life? Hey, man, first, I just want to say what a treat to be with you. You know, you wrote one of my favorite books of the last few years, and uh, I just think you're such a smart person, and the amount of rigor you put into stuff is really impressive to me. So uh, I'm really thrilled to talk to you. Uh, and rigor is important, I think, because it ties into this a little bit, certainly in what attracted me to boxing. You know, these connections you make to these primal sports, and let's talk about boxing first. There's something about fathers and sons especially in the 70s when I grew up, that uh, if you were a family that cared about sports and if you were a dad and son that, who played sports together, um, boxing, talking about things through the prism of boxing and through the prism of Ali and Frazier was just the most natural thing on earth. You know, My dad went to the fight in the garden 
he had these commemorative gloves that he, he that lived in my room growing up from Ali Frazier. And we would talk about the fighters. From a very early age, I understood that Ali was a hero, but it's funny, my dad also loved the workmanlike quality of Joe Frazier. Um, and Joe Frazier, it's hard for people now to understand that, uh, yes, Ali was Ali and the most important athlete maybe of all time, one of the most important public figures of all time and, and earned, justified in every way. But the way the story gets told now, Frazier is a supporting player. But Frazier was nobody's supporting player in the early and mid-70s. Joe Frazier was as big a star, as famous a figure, and also as inspiring a figure because what Ali could do was an impossibility, right? No one could relate to being able to achieve anything with the grace and finesse and power and elegance of Muhammad Ali. That was like watching, I mean, butterfly, his word, but that was like watching the end result of a chrysalis in the very last moment when it, it hit in the most, it is most beautiful form. Whereas Joe Frazier was a guy who was just uh, obviously an extraordinary athlete, but tough. He wasn't built, he wasn't hugely tall, he wasn't massive. He had somehow turned himself into this incredibly strong, tough, fast-punching, uh, kind of immovable object. And I would say, Bryn, the, the supporting players around those two guys, if those two guys were sort of the stars, pre-Foreman, um, the people around them and the way that we all thought of them, they were, and this ties to wrestling too, they were, um, they were drawn very specifically and the way the narrative was built by Cosell and Keith Jackson and whoever else was talking about boxing then, Wide World of Sports, Ken Norton, you know, broke Ali's jaw. He was a lefty with this very strange stance. Ernie Shavers hit so hard that one punch could make you throw up your lungs. Uh, you know, Jerry Quarry was uh, um, sluggish, but you hoped he wouldn't catch you. Chuck Webner could last as long as you needed. And so you would look at all these figures, and as Ali would fight them, you would, uh, they would build up these narratives. And because there were only three television channels, before cable and before the internet, you were caught up in this story, if you were focused on it at all, all day long. Um, and uh, you would look forward to these fights. And also, you know, there wasn't really pay-per-view, right, until the Foreman fight. I guess there was, but like, I guess when, when Norton fought in, in Yankee Stadium, maybe there was pay-per-view, but early, many fights were on television. And then they weren't on pay-per-view where you could watch them at home. So you would have to either find a way to go to an arena to watch them on a screen or like if you were like me you couldn't do that so all you could do was read about it and this ties directly into wrestling because because you could only see these people in bursts that went away 
you could see Ali in the preliminary fights, and not, but not the championship fight until it was rerun two weeks later. You were reading accounts written by the greatest sports writers, and you were trying to hang on to every word and picture it. And when it lives in your imagination like that, it becomes so much bigger. They go from being human beings to being something um, mythical. And, and I'll tell you, it's lasted, right? They are mythical figures somehow. They are larger-than-life figures somehow. Certainly, Ali, Frazier, Norton, and Foreman are mythical figures. I, I don't think we've had since then, I guess you could say, um, I mean, Tyson was like that, but I don't think we've had, even when you had Lennox and Tyson and Evander, it's really not the same thing as Ali, Frazier, Foreman, um, and Norton. Those figures were just more titanic somehow. And like, I can't picture Lennox Lewis beating any of those people in their primes. Maybe, you know, you guys, you're an expert and you have experts here who probably have gamed out these fights and maybe he was so big and strong that he would, but it's just hard for me to imagine those guys um, having their will broken by any of those more modern fighters and wrestling. The magazines did so much work. <laughs> the magazines, so for people who are listening who don't know about this, for Boxing Right, there was Ring Magazine uh, and some other magazines. For wrestling, because wrestling was in this period called the kayfabe era, and what kayfabe means, uh, kayfabe is the carny code where the insiders know what's going on um, but the marks, who is the audience, they don't know what's going on. And for a long, 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 long time, everybody around wrestling, including the media, were in on the gag. They were all part of the work, the work being what the con is called. They were all part of the work. And so what that meant was, so wrestling would come on on a Saturday night, and it was regional, so I would be watching the WWF, Somebody in Florida would be watching the AWA or NWA, the NWA. Somebody in um, uh, Minnesota would be watching the AWA. And there were all these other regions, right? The Mid-South region, the Tennessee wrestling. And the wrestling magazines, the wrestler, Inside Wrestling, Pro Wrestling Illustrated primarily, they would have these writers who would tell stories of the feuds, of the origins of the wrestlers, of the injuries, of the challenges that they faced. So they would keep them alive when a wrestler left my territory and went for a couple months to fight across the country. I would stay informed about that person through the magazines. And so again, they're living as myth for you. So that when they then show up on a Saturday night, and there also wasn't the internet, so you don't know what's gonna happen on Saturday night. You don't, until you turn in, you don't know who's going to show up for those, um, for those matches. And so also as somebody who grew up to be a storyteller, man, like the way that both the boxers then and the wrestlers would tell their tale on the stick in the interstitial moments was as compelling as the action in the ring. Plus for wrestling, the the very dim production value was additive somehow. It made the whole thing feel so grimy. 
it felt so low rent and so grimy and so wrong to watch. You knew you were watching Carney. I, I couldn't have told you the word Carney at 11 years old, but I knew I was watching Carney workers. I knew I was watching sort of like the lowest rung of showbiz, 10 in one show, freak show stuff. And that these people were turning themselves inside out for us. And they were putting on a multi-layered meta show that worked for me as a eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 year old on all the levels. Because I would read these wrestling magazines and I would, I would read a story about Crusher Blackwell and part of my brain would know that some writer sitting in a bar across from his office in the 40s in New York was just making this shit up uh, based on some picture that he was sent in from stock photo of Crusher Blackwell with, you know, uh, I would cut himself um, or Stan Hansen's lariat. Uh, I would know that the guy was making this story up and like I said, pictured him in a bar somewhere with his friends and uh, an ashtray full of cigs, but on another level, the stories just worked on me the way they would work on the biggest mark. And at, so I would have this, and the duality, which was because they wouldn't confirm it was fixed. Even though you knew it wasn't real, you didn't really know. And the, the, the juxtaposition of both of those trains running in your head at the same time made it endlessly animating so that you would watch trying to, you know, that David Foster Wallace essay about when he covered the uh, um, AVN awards. And he talked about, in that piece, he Big talks Red about, Sun. yeah, Big Red Sun, he talks in that piece about the moment that he watched porn for, he said, would, was, uh, finding these rare moments and you never knew when they would happen when suddenly you just saw that a performer was really there for an instant you saw on a performer's face he said man or woman you saw on their face a moment of total engagement the rest of the time they're checked out they're performing they're not there they're not having an orgasm they're not but there is a moment wallace says when suddenly you're able to see human behavior and it's real and it's something you don't get to see otherwise and both boxing in the 70s and wrestling really delivered on that front um you would watch dusty Rhodes give a promo and yes that's a guy performing but you would see a moment of him enjoying getting over uh you would see someone go off the top rope and execute a move uh and there would be sheer joy at doing it. Or Ernie Ladd would get up uh, heat from the audience and you could see him getting off on that. You know, the moment Jimmy Young perplexed Ali, I'll never forget as long as I live, watching with my dad. And um, the way he would duck out of the ring and come back into the ring. and all the, I, I've always wanted to watch that fight again. I haven't in a long, long time. But in fact, if you know where that is, will you send me the link to Jimmy Young, Ali? I'm sure it's findable through your... But like... The, the, I, I remember that feeling of Ali did not expect that there was a chance he could lose this fight. We're in a real moment here. Um, Bobak Norton, which is, you know, Dave and I reference in rounders. I mean, I remember what it felt like to watch for months 
this buildup to this guy, Dwayne Bobbick. And then I remember what happened in 58 seconds when he was obliterated by the overhand right. And sort of everything being correct in the world when that happened too. Because you couldn't erase, you couldn't escape all the race stuff then, even if you were a white privileged kid in, 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 in Long Island. And then, and then the other part of this stuff, I was thinking about it because I left out something super important about why this all mattered. The bicentennial was in 1976 and Sugar Ray Leonard happened to show up in the Olympics in 1976. Uh -huh. And I actually never seen anyone write about it, about this. But if, if we think about what that happened there, you know, maybe the greatest boxer who ever lived and he surfaces to win the gold medal in the bicentennial year Olympics, when the Olympics mattered in such an enormous way. I remember my camp, I was at a summer camp and they didn't allow televisions. And I was 10 and not well liked. I was a, a little bit obnoxious 10 year old, I think, and um, didn't want to really be there. And I remember rallying everybody and convincing the whole camp basically to get behind me so I could convince the owners of the camp to get us a TV so we could watch Sugar Ray fight. And I did, I won, I got it. And my bunk got to, I was popular for a week because my bunk got a television to watch Sugar Ray's fights. And I remember making the argument at 10 years old, I was born in 66, so I was 10. I remember making the argument that um, it was once in a lifetime that this guy was going to be the most important middleweight fighter ever. Did he fight middle at, at the Olympics or did he fight? Um, He's a little lighter. Lighter, that's what I was asking you. Welterweight at the Olympics or something? So. But I remember thinking, oh, this guy's gonna be the most important fighter in the world. And um, I haven't looked any of this up, so if I have my dates wrong, I have them wrong, but I don't think I do. I think it was the 76 Olympics, I'm almost positive. Yeah. And um, I mean, I'm literally just remembering it from being 10. I, I just didn't look any of it up. Uh, but I knew why, how much he mattered. And, you know, also because of Teofalo Stevenson, Teofalo Stevenson and the idea that, you know, this guy had in the heavyweight division um, had been so dominant and we hadn't won the gold in the heavyweight division in a while. But here was this guy who was going to win in the lighter division. And that's what really mattered. And Sugar Ray exploding the way he did. That was a handoff. That was a real handoff from Ali to Sugar Ray. And you didn't have a handoff like that. Again, right, Tyson was not, I mean, Tyson was, what, I don't know, 10 years later. So um, it's a long time later, till, till eight years later before Tyson became Tyson. And in, so you had Sugar Ray, and then obviously the game was carried by Sugar Ray and Roberto Duran for, and Hagler and Hearns. You know, all these, all these people around that time, though I would say Hagler and Hearns, as big as they were, they were not like Sugar Ray and Ali and, and Tyson, I don't think. Um, in terms of the broad cultural appeal, every person in America kind of knew who Sugar Ray was. I don't know that every person in America knew who Marvin Hagler was in the same way. You tell yeah. me if I'm wrong. But it's all these things added up to it, I think. And then, sadly, the at least wrestling, the carny part of wrestling was what you were buying. You were you were buying a soda pop that was sugar. You know, you knew you were buying sugar water or something. But when I started to realize Jose Suleiman and his ilk and their corrosive impact 
and influence, it, it just, at a certain point, post Buster Douglas fully, but at a certain point, I got so sickened by the corruption in boxing that I just decided not to invest in it anymore. And, um, and other than for Roy Jones, who I love, Roy Jones is like my second favorite fighter ever lived. Um, my wife and I watched the James Tony fight together early in our marriage. And it was, you know, one of the like most incredible things you ever saw again, Olympic hero coming out and like fulfilling this destiny that no, actually nobody thought he'd win that fight. And I remember watching that fight and then I went to see Roy fight in person twice, but that was the rare thing that got me back because he was so exceptional. But I don't know what could get me back now with the amount of the lack of faith I have in the possibility of it being run fairly. I wonder, what do you, I mean, it sounds like you were interested in that same line of what is real and what isn't real with kayfabe in wrestling. And researching that a little bit, because boxing now is veering into that territory with novelty matches. Yes. Where nobody seems to care that it, like having competitive athletes. I like, mean, I refused to. So I thought about, I, I went online and said, like, should I buy the fight? Um, because it was like my two of my favorite boxers who ever lived. Uh, because I, I was super obsessed with Tyson. I watched every single Tyson fight, right? I was still fully engaged by that. Um, what was it about Tyson that engaged you so? Well, again, everything. Let me answer. I'll answer both questions. So, yeah, boxing. I no, I, 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 I hated seeing Nate Robinson get knocked out when I watched that on video afterwards, and I refused to buy the fight. I didn't buy that fight, even though it was Tyson and Jones. Um, because it didn't feel like kayfabe to me, because there was. With Tyson and Roy, I mean, there was no animus at all, right? These are just guys were going to just go work around, work. They were just kind of like working in the ring together. And um, and Tyson, and look, I'm sure you've talked about Tyson a ton on your podcast. He's such a tragic figure for so many reasons. And, and the odd thing about Tyson is, you know, He's actually, I mean, he's a genius. And that, he's not just a genius fighter. I mean, he's a, like, he's an intellectual genius, which is so strange. You know, you, you, I mean, you're someone who studied geniuses, but I mean, he is by all the sort of like metrics. When you hear him talk, I mean, this is a person who, if his life was different, what couldn't that guy have been in his life? I mean, he's got a brain that's like so nuanced and nimble. It's insane. And so the tragedy of it all, I mean, he knows you know, there's something in Tyson that he clearly is like fully aware of all of it, of all the strangeness of the whole tragedy. So it's just very sad for me. And that gets to what was so fascinating. Oh, a couple things. You know, for me, Tyson and Kevin Rooney together cussed to Tyson and Rooney. And again, dude, I haven't like looked any of this is all just from like my memory of like back when I was so into it. But you know, when Tyson would come into the ring and 
with that seriousness of purpose, the way Cuss and Rooney spoke to him, the way he leaned on Rooney, and then, like out of a Greek myth, you know, when he cuts Rooney out, I mean, he just loses in two seconds. And um, there was something in Mike's willingness early on to deny himself the pleasures of life, the true ascetic thing that he had to do to shut all that other shit off in order to be Mike Tyson, that, um, that appeals to me for the same reason um, Haruki Murakami's What I Talk About When I Talk About Running appeals to me. It's that total commitment to an impossible path. I mean, it's what fascinates you about Magnus Carlsen. It's, right, this, in, this com- a level of commitment that would make most people go crazy. And in right. fact, does, right? In fact, it does make you go crazy. In fact, it ruined Mike Tyson, probably. Sure. Um, uh, it doesn't seem to ruin Murakami, but maybe it's because the, uh, the, all that stuff is to serve the writing, ultimately. And so maybe if he did all that only to serve that physical aim, perhaps it would ruin him. But it seems to me that it seems to me that everything he's doing is to serve his highest possible calling, which is the writing. And perhaps that saves him from going crazy. Um, of course, I don't know that dude, so maybe he is crazy, but it, he seems to be able to deliver the novel still at such a high level that he doesn't seem crazy to me. What do you think? Well, I mean, I think with Tyson, I mean, what, one thing I was curious about for you as a writer who's created such memorable characters is Tyson very rarely gets credit for cultivating the marketing of Mike Tyson, the character. You right. know, he just sold a fight where not a single meaningful punch was thrown between two guys at a combined age of 105 fighting for 16 minutes, and they made $80 million. Right. Well, and, and you know, you really, you hope against hope that Mike's going to keep whatever that he got. Um, <laughs> right. Well, no, this goes back to, I mean, when I say Tyson's a genius, you know, go watch him talk to James Toback on that documentary. That's fascinating. You it's- are listening to a brilliant person. And... He talks funny and he uses big words, but I, the ways that I apprehend somebody's intellect, one of the ways is by the, by the manner in which they string sentences and thoughts and paragraphs together. And Mike Tyson does that in, in as elevated a way as you ever need to. Um, and, uh, and he's such, and, and, you know, also a convicted rapist, so he's also a monster. And um, I'm, I'm not in a position to say that it's not tr- a true story. I, I think it probably is a true story. He's convicted in a court of law, you know. Um, and he claimed he did, he claimed he was innocent, but that he did, I think it was six to seven things that are worse than that which he was accused of. Yes, so. and I believe in redemption and change, the possibility of change. and. And also, I have a visceral reaction to Mike Tyson, which is a very positive visceral reaction because of watching him when he was a kid. And have you talked to him? Have you spent any no, time? He he no. We were supposed to this year, and then he got his people reached out to me um, and said he wanted to meet, and I was like, "Yep." And then uh, and then 
um, we were supposed to get in a Zoom, and um, and then they announced the fight, and he went to train. And they said I could come up to where he was training, but it's COVID. I wasn't gonna. I'm not gonna go go to where he's training. Yeah. Um, have you spent time with him? Uh, I mean, maybe in total three hours. And what did you come away with? Um, I think he said to me, you know, I told him when I was a kid who was bullied that he was a big source of inspiration for me, that he used all his bullying and vulnerability as ammunition to become a victimizer, ultimately, but that it was a construct of this lisping kid who never stood up for himself. And I thought, boy, if, if cowardice as a millstone can be used as a weapon, maybe I can do something in this life. And it just seems so unlikely that he would chart this path he did. Um, I just, I mean, it's just all in that voice, right? The, the, the what did he say? Did he, did he, I mean, he must've loved the word millstone, man. Like that's the kind of thing I could see that guy loving. He said, what are your, what are your heroes? Who are your other, who were your other heroes when you were a kid besides me? And I oh, said, you put this in your book. This is in the yeah, book. This is yeah. in your book. Put yes. it, put it in there. But he just said, which was interesting is that, Taking on the pain of me and these other tortured people in no way is in service of us. It's just so that you think you're more interesting than you are, that you don't have enough pain of your own. Right. I'm, I, yes, I remember this from the book. Right. I mean, the guy's a fucking genius, dude. I yeah, mean, that's, I mean, it nailed me. Yeah. I mean, that's an incredible, like, I mean, there's so many layers to that because most famous people that famous, why do they even want to give you the second to really regard you and give that back to you and look at you? And like the fact that he did give that to you is yeah. amazing to me and the difficult conversation that that was and all of it you know yeah and and i mean later on i went back and and was you know i was kind of reading between the lines with the toback interview and some other things that he talked about then he puts out this memoir where he mentions that somebody in quotes now for people who can't see us said that somebody attempted to molest him when he was a kid right. and then never returned to it again in the rest of the book. And I thought, has anybody written about this? Has anybody explored? Because it sure seems to explain a lot for a guy who, yeah. in his words, once threatened Lennox Lewis by saying, or while well, uh, Lennox Lewis press conference said to a reporter who told him to be put in a straitjacket, bitch, I'll fuck you till you love me, faggot. Right. No, I'm, I'm, uh, yeah, horrible. And I know you're quoting not using that word yourself. Yeah. But the, but the emotional dynamics of that statement, I thought, I yeah. don't believe that he's come up with this. I think he's quoting somebody that said it to him. I, oh, think, he's, I think he's quoting somebody that probably raped him or was molesting him. But, and then I asked him about it and he said, I'm always, all my most memorable quotes is me quoting somebody else. And in that case, I was quoting my mother and... Who was the other person? I forget the other person he referenced, but I thought, boy, talk about going right to the source. Yeah, man, that's just heavy. I mean, that's so heavy. Um, so yes, we have to credit him largely with the self-mythologizing. And, and, and I'm glad you brought it up because that's another part of Well, that's another part of what happened in the era we're talking about. Because if you think about the other biggest figures of that era, Evil Knievel was a self-mythologizer. 
Reggie Jackson was a self-mythologizer. Pete Rose was a self-mythologizer. Jimmy Connors was a self-mythologizer. And because the media worked differently and these people had to sort of find a way to cut through and make them. So it was the beginning of the athlete. Now it's all from Ali, but it was the beginning of the athlete as the promoter of, of, of himself in a way or herself in a way. And, um, and the culture was kind of built around it. And I don't think you can uh, oversell Cosell, right? I don't think you can sure. oversell the influence that Cosell had. Because Vince McMahon's whole, Junior's whole attitude on the mic was like the pro wrestling version of Howard Cosell then. You know, sure. he was aping what Cosell did. And Cosell is who told us all the stories. Um, and then all the different broadcasters. It's funny. Uh, I don't know that there's a figure in the culture who even approximates the position that Cosell had. No, there's no equivalent. And it's surprising. You should write, it's surprising. No one's, you should write that book, dude. You should write the Cosell book. Nobody's written the Cosell book. Be amazing. Huh? That's an interesting, that would be an amazing book. I know that Jim Lampley, who's the closest that boxing probably had to him as a color commentator, did spend time working with Cosell directly and said he was a, he was a tremendous piece of work. <laughs> oh, I'm he's supposed to be just such a prick. Yeah. But I mean, if you think about Cosell and Ali, like telling the whole story from the perspective, because like, I always think Cosell was a villain and a hero and all these things, but I'm sure his story couldn't have been easy to become Howard Cosell. No. And at that time and with that whole package of things. And I met him once, a boy on an airplane. He was a total fucking cocksucker. And uh, it was fine, though. Honestly, it's kind of what you wanted in a weird way. Uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? Because of what he was like. But, um, sure. but you can't undersell the, the, or, or oversell the, um, the, uh, the way that he would help these men mythologized themselves. I mean, each thing I just named to you, he was kind of in the middle of, right? He was in the middle of the evil Knievel of it all. He was certainly in the middle of all the prize fights. Oh, yeah. um, he was in the middle of all of any, any football player. Um, what, what, I don't... what do you think it was like, Brian? If like, if you were, I, I when I was looking it up with professional wrestling, yeah. like that, what it was before going back to Greece and all of that ended in basically by the 1930s that's where somebody like you said you know what fuck this competitive shit let's just script it and let's all hide the fact that we're scripting it and make it more fun to create well, the greatest plot lines possible yeah but i think it went more slowly than that right i think what it was was that the carnival is going from town to town we can't actually have a fight every single night in every single town. Right. So instead, we're just going to have to move around the ring a bit and I'm going to act really pissed at you and you're going to act really pissed at me. And, and I think from that sprung, like from that, from bootlegging sprung NASCAR, I think from that, yes, entrepreneurial people started realizing they could tell this narrative over like a, a longer arc. Um, and, and also at that time, you know, you had in the 70s, I'm saying, yes, with Bruno Sammartino, you had these figures who were 
um, larger than life figures, but but also there were only I mentioned a few television channels because these were your choices and the way people kept you engaged was by writing about it, Brandon. I don't, I, I, the reason I, you know, I, I talk about sort of like the boxing magazines and the wrestling magazines and, and, and think about how many sports magazines we read as kids. Now you're younger than I am, but even when you were a kid, cause are you 40? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Even when you were a kid, there was sports illustrated sport, and uh, maybe inside sports, right? Probably three magazines still when you were a kid. You know, going, I remember distinctly going to the magazine store at 12, 11. I mean, because like you're saying, like even pro wrestling, I was eight when WrestleMania 3 happened. Right. Where you had 90,000 people. Yeah. yeah, Andre and Hulk. And I mean, around that time, Hulk Hogan was the Make a Wish Foundation's number one person that dying kids wanted to see. Amazing. Not like, and Michael Jackson and Mickey Mouse, I think, were the other two. But the idea that somebody that is not actually doing a real thing. Right. Well, they are. But okay, I'm glad you brought that up. They are doing a real thing. What they're doing is they're enacting something that allows you to get catharsis. So they are really doing something. And uh, they're putting their bodies at tremendous risk. And they're touring 330 nights a year. And... They're doing all sorts of drugs to keep themselves mobile. And um, it's a very rough life, that right life, I think. And um, But we would read these bags, which is what I say is the reason when I think about, you know, you would read Sports Illustrated or Sport Magazine or Inside Sports. I would. And it's different than reading a quick burst thing or listening to a podcast. Because what happens when we read the written word is our imaginations fill in and make greater whatever we're reading about. And like I love the Magnus Carlson documentaries and it what and I even like Magnus Carlson on TikTok. I mean, what an amazing figure. But the kid in your book is just way more fascinating. Because, first of all, it's being filtered through your prism, but then I get to filter it through my prism as I put the book down and go to bed at night and wake up in the morning and it's still lingering. It it becomes something greater. And that's the thing about those fighters. They were written about constantly. They were your constant companion. I mean, I guess that was Sugar Ray for you a little bit in the 80s, right? Yeah. Well, and I, and I think also these guys, when you're a kid, I mean, you were, you're growing up in Long Island, right? Yeah. I was born in 66 and grew up on Long Island and moved to Manhattan in 84. So, I mean, in 87, you know, 88. Yeah. I mean, for me, yeah. And I mean, for me with wrestling, these guys were emissaries of places that I'd never been to, you know, bad news. Brown is from Harlem, New York. Holy fuck. I don't want to go to Harlem, New York. If this, this guy's so angry. Well, yeah. right, and for me, the the thing of like, yeah, people from Texas and stuff, like Tan, Stan Hansen from Texas, uh, and and it was the storytelling uh, ultimately about in all this stuff, where and this is what's great about. So I love UFC, you know, and I started watching UFC from from USC number one, and that was when it was truly no hold, holds barred, no weight classes. I mean, Blood I watched sport. that. It's basically watched, a blood sport, right? It was. I watched number one. My, Amy and I watched number one. And uh, 
I watched the first like 80 of them or something like that. I, and and I, I found in it the perfect combination of wrestling and boxing. Huh. It, it, it was, yeah. it's like really down the middle because they're really doing this thing, but it's, it's low, at the beginning it was low rent. It was, there was a hunger that you could feel that existed. Uh, and, and it had none of the bullshit back then of boxing, meaning there wasn't so much money to be made that it was crooked. You know, the crookedness of boxing judges and the fact is to this day, none of you have figured out how to fix it. No one at, like, you know, if these people would just get, like, they could, like, like why couldn't, uh, the judging in boxing is so fundamentally flawed and the, the people who run boxing somehow clearly see that as a feature, not a bug, or they would fix it. And they see it as a feature, not a bug, because it enables them to keep in power who they want to keep in power. Sure. And when I realized that at whatever age, it was just like, well, I'm done now. You know, I mean, you can draw a line from, from Don King protesting the Buster Douglas decision to Donald Trump protesting the election. It's like uh, the, I hated seeing King. I loved, Ty you couldn't have loved Tyson more than I liked him then. And I was so angry when Don King tried to tell that story about the fight because I watched that fight in a bar in Washington, D.C. I had read the Frank DeFord Buster Douglas article the week before. I had a, that week in the National. I had a feeling that Tyson might lose to Buster. I remember I tried to get a bet down and I couldn't. I remember watching it. And the fact that uh, that King protested, it was like one of the final, I was just like, Jesus Christ, like they're shameless. And also all the internecine stuff was, shame, was, was shameless, I thought. Uh, all of the ways in which the different organizations would not cooperate, the ways in which they took advantage of the fighters. You know, you just started realizing this stuff as, you, as I grew up and it, it, uh, that combination of things slowly at first and then quickly caused me to kind of lose interest. Like I think the last fight I went to was Lewis Hollyfield at the garden, which what was that? 93, 94, something like that. No, no later, later. 98, 98, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. There. I wanted to, I wanted to ask you, I noticed on Twitter, Checking. you, you get in a lot you offer a lot of material to aspiring writers about the ups and downs of your career. And I wonder, I mean, do we have another 15 minutes? Is that okay? Yeah, I was just was checking 99. Sorry, that fight was 99. Yeah. That's the first thing I looked up, 99. So that's the last fight. The last fight I went to in person. That's the last one. March 13th, 1999. 20, wow, 22 years ago, practically. Yeah. Uh, I, wanted to, I wanted to go in with you a little bit about that about the ups and downs of your career because you talk about it a lot on twitter and it seems to be very cathartic for people to hear that somebody as successful as yep. you are with billions and rounders and stuff like that um when did you have it in your mind that this was the career path you were going to embark upon and and maybe you could just tell that story of the ups and downs to get you where you are today sure it, it's not um I mean, there's no straight line that you could draw, man, I would say it, but 
basically at 30, when our first kid was born, I just realized I wasn't doing what I was meant to do. And I had this insight that uh, if I let these creative impulses die, I was a blocked writer. I really deep down wanted to do this stuff and I was terrified. And I realized that if I, if I let this creative impulse die, like any other death, it would have toxicity. And that toxicity would ooze out of me onto the people that I love. That would become bitter and miserable. And that's what made me dedicate myself to getting up early and writing in the mornings with my best friend, we, Dave, uh, we wrote, and that's when we wrote Rounders together. And yeah, then you start off on this. And, and as soon as I started doing it, I was working from the place where I felt most alive. And that enabled me to uh, feel much better during the course of the day and, and become the person I wanted to be in, in many ways. But then the career still smacks you in the face like uh, James Honeyman Scott left or something. And you, uh, or no, Honeyman Scott was the guitar player. James Scott was the boxer. James Scott was the boxer out of Railway State Penitentiary. They would That's have right. him on uh, from Railway State Penitentiary. But it's uh, got option, by the way. A story I wrote about that has just been optioned to be. Oh, turned. you wrote about James Scott? Yeah, I was. A, that's. I mean, that's another one of those guys that we were freaked out about, obsessed. I, Will you send me what you wrote? Yeah, I couldn't. I couldn't believe that nobody had really dropped into that. Dave and I thought about it too, man, because they would show those clips of him doing the push-ups and sit-ups in his cell. Yeah. And it was just amazing. And then I went back and read about him a few years ago and I, I, that he got in trouble again, you know, all that stuff. And he was fighting out of the fighting out of there and then got out to fight. But then I think he wasn't able to keep himself together. Right. He went, he went back. He just died actually not long ago. He had dementia at the end. Um, but no, I did a 10,000 word article about it for, who? Uh, for SB nation, but, but it got picked up a lot of places just because people couldn't believe that it was real. Oh, that's great, dude. That's great. Um, so but what I was going to say is, so yeah. a career will hit you like James Scott or something. And any career in a creative endeavor, you're going to take a lot of standing eight counts. The, the truth is, as long as you're really doing this work for the right reasons, you, you can fight through those things. And I've been able to. And I, the reason I share all of it is, if someone's out there and they have some dream that most people think is unrealistic or crazy, and they're willing to work with incredible rigor, discipline, and focus to achieve it, then they're my people. Those are my people. And I want to say to those people, it's doable, it's really hard, but it's worth it. And, uh, and what I get out of that is the letters thanking me and the feeling that I've left breadcrumbs for people to find their way to where I am, which is in this place of uh, being able to do creative work and kind of live a life on my own and Amy and our family's terms. Well, at 30, what were you doing before you? I was an executive in the record business. I had a great job and, and it was the thing I thought I would always do. I had also gone to law school at night and had just graduated law school, but none of it was filling my soul as sort of precious as that sounds. I also don't want to not finish here, by the way, without talking about another one of the central boxing things in my childhood. Sure. Which is that I watched the Dooku Kim Boom Boom Mancini fight. Oh, you watched him get killed. Watched yeah. it in real time. Wow. And, um, yeah. Because uh, it was like on either Wild World of Sports or 
I'm pretty sure it was on Wide World of Sports. It was like during the day somehow. And uh, and it was everybody loved Mancini so much. And then in the middle of that fight, you you saw how hard this other guy was, just how little quit there was in Dooku Kim. And then it really shook him. It, it really, it's, I mean, it's another, like, one of the, it, it really fucking shook us up when, when you could, when he was, you know, when, he, when we found out he died. It was really um, a fucked up, brutal thing. And then when Boom Boom came back and was slightly different, it was like a moment of growing up for me somehow, like through watching the change in Mancini and Mancini and his dad and the way we all agreed to like forget that he'd killed some, it wasn't his fault, but forget that this guy died. I'll say it was like pretty, it was a pretty significant thing. You know, when you're young, you don't exactly have the words to talk that kind of thing out. I would spend like an inordinate amount of time thinking about with just my own limited capacity as a kid, but thinking about what all that meant. It meant, it really like had a pretty great significance that I bet you has shown up in my work in ways that um, I barely know, but it was like, you know, sporting, uh, sporting events, if you're, some of those don't get, are like healthy enough, they don't give a shit. But if you give a shit and if you gave a shit as a kid, they are part of how we tell our tribal stories. And so they become totemic stories. And you go back to them and reshape them and rethink about them. Uh, and, and I will say Mancini Kim is one of those, Dooku Kim is one of those things also for me. Well, it's also interesting that our country processed watching somebody get killed for the first time through boxing. Right. You know, the first time it was ever televised, somebody getting killed was, um, you know, a prize fight before, before we watched Lee Harvey Oswald get murdered. We, Which fight was that? That was the Benny Perrette getting killed. Yeah. Uh, I don't think I've ever seen it. Yeah. I mean, the referee just kind of let a beating go a little longer and, uh, Within three days, he was dead. But I mean, they, they were talking about banning the sport then. With right, you know, I guess I was sixteen. I was in high school when the Mancini Kim fight happened. So yeah. Um, have you had many many boxers wrestlers on your show? Uh, on um, on your on podcast, on your podcast? On podcast, yeah. Um. Um, well, no, I've had Becky Lynch, who's my favorite wrestler. She's been on the podcast and, um, obviously I would have Tyson on. I mean, I'm not, other than Tyson, I, I really don't. hear many boxers that willing to really answer the why questions mm. or if they answer the why questions they're answered kind of because and the truth is who am i to ask them questions about what they do they're willing to do a thing that is so beyond anything i'm willing to do that 
I wouldn't be able, I don't think, to probe in exactly the right way. Tyson, I would try to ask questions to. Even Sugar Ray Leonard never really, like, spoke to the source of his ability to do the thing that he could do. Um, I think you might be off on that because I think these guys are actors as well. They have to con themselves into the characters they become and their well, performance. And you're uniquely qualified to talk the to only the time. Well, so like I spoke to, to, to the champ, Deontay, a bit. And because huh. he was on Billions. Yeah. And so I spent a day and a half with him and I loved him. Yeah, he's nice. And he was willing to talk about the feeling of bones breaking in your hand, the people's, not, not his bones breaking, of what that feeling is like in a way that spoke to me. And he's, I think, very good about, oh, so wait, sorry, I did go to another fight. So he, I'll tell you, he's very good at talking about really being a gladiator in a way that I, I found illuminating and great. Sorry, I did go to a fight, I blocked it out. So I went to the Wilder fight in the Bronx three years ago. That was the other fight I went to when Wilder, Wilder fought at, in the Bronx. And actually that knockout made me promise I'd never go again. It was so stomach turning huh. to me. I was, the head of Showtime took me with him. So we were fourth row. I think I saw you there. I could see you from press row with your son. Yeah. Yeah, I Did think we talk I saw that you. Night? I don't think we talked, but I think I saw I spotted you there. I, yeah. Did you text Did we text each other or something? <laughs> I don't remember, but You should but have I, said hi to me. That's totally yeah. weird, but um yes, I was like impressed. I was like in the fourth row with yeah. my son and some other friends. And the punch disturbed me. I got physically sick from the punch. I mean, I don't know what your experience of it was, but the sound of it and watching what it actually did to his opponent, it, and if this is wimpy for your listeners, I apologize, but it did just turn my stomach. I was like, I can't, uh, I don't think I can celebrate this anymore personally. Uh, it was really disturbing to me. Well, please tell me about the UFC, because that's interesting. A lot of people are really one or the other. It's kind of a Coke or a Pepsi. And I know we share a political leaning, and obviously the UFC's audience seems to be very, very Republican. But it's I'm, also, no, but if you know about jiu-jitsu, it's totally different, right? That's so true. That's true. If, that's you're, true. If, if you're, understand Brazilian jiu-jitsu at all, you're watching it like a chess match. And yeah, so... My son did jujitsu for a long time, and my partner Dave in work, you know, he's uh, very, very good at Brazilian jujitsu. And so that's probably the prism through which I watch it now. I, I don't really watch it very much anymore. I did, though. And I look, I, also, I was different in my 30s when it started or whatever than I am in my 50s. So the way I think about it, yes, I, I, um, I uh, when Anderson Silva broke his leg, that might be the last. That might be the last UFC card I bought. That was not fun to watch. I remember that uh, distinctly. Yeah, 
I remember watching it. I know exactly where I was. I know who I was while I was watching with my son and my wife and some friends. And I was, we were in Santa Barbara. And uh, I remember watching that fight. And I'm not sure. I've probably ordered some since then. But it's like that definitely marked a diminution of my interest. Mm. What, do you, what do you make of its success and, and sort of how Trump and family have leaned into it so heavily, as well as Dana White leaning so heavily into Trump? It's, well, it's, yeah, I don't. That, none of that makes sense to me. And uh, it, I think the glad. Listen, what those people do as gladiators is fucking incredible. And learning to be that good at Brazilian jiu-jitsu is so hard. And having to have the composure that they have to do what they do is just impossible. I can separate that from Dana and his reactionary political leanings. I mean, so much of that stuff, Bryn, is like marketing and storytelling, as we were saying. I mean, when you have Joe Rogan, who's a brilliant storyteller, telling your story and then doing the thing in his podcast, I mean, you're sort of, you're, you're sort of curating this, the audience that you want in a certain way. It's, it's a, like a reaffirming kind of a circle, right? Yeah. But I, I can separate you know, and maybe maybe we were off. Maybe Joe Rogan is the Howard Cosell that we have now. Sure. I mean, he he's getting 180 million downloads yeah. a month, where the New York Times getting four million per show on the daily sort of thing. But I mean, it's insane that the guy has the reach that he does. Yeah. Well, he's very good at what he does, right? And yeah, yeah I, and I'm not trying to say it's insane. because I mean, he's, he's come up with this language for the way that he's. I mean, I would. Say, yeah. He's very good at commentating on the UFC. I mean, there's no doubt about it. And, um, and very good at what he does on his podcast, even if I wish, you know. Um, I mean, when he had Alex Jones on, uh, I found it so repulsive and just so morally wrong that it's hard to square that with somebody who's obviously a bright person. Uh, I don't understand. I can't understand how anybody could have Alex Jones and give him any kind of a platform. But that's different from when he's announcing UFC. And as I said, I haven't bought a UFC card in a really long time. Uh, I mean, I'm less interested in seeing people pummel each other now. I just am. I don't know why that is, but I'm less interested in it. Do you, do you think it's, I mean, in, in my own experience, I share that. Uh, I think it's feeling my own fragility a little more and people die around you as you get older that i don't yeah it's the mean i mean i guess it's like we're in mean times man and i'm just not sure in these mean times that i need to watch that although like let's i don't want to be a hypocrite and i don't want to like also lie to myself you know if sugar ray leonard showed up again i would probably take the ride right um because that's the other thing, greatness. Anderton Silva pulls you in because we want to fly, Bryn, and we can't fly. But a few of our number can. And when they can and they invite us in, we want to get on their backs and go fly with them. And so when you're watching 
Sugar Ray Leonard in 1976, you, you believe that he's not going to get hurt. And, you know, other than the thing that happened to his eye, I mean, he basically never got hurt. Yeah. Which is crazy. I mean, it's crazy. And he's still compass mentis, it seems to me. Seems. Like, uh, like, I don't know him, so I don't, you know, I don't know if he can find the keys. On the other hand, I'm 54. I'm sure there are times I can't find the fucking keys. And I never got, I haven't gotten hit in the face till I, since I was 12, you know. Well, I know you got to run off soon, but let me just ask you, when do you think in your career of writing, when do you feel like you have, through the characters you've written for, that you've flown? When do you, like, what would you look at right now and say, here are three little points where I go, that. Well, it's, I mean, it's not for me to say, I'm not going to say I ever flew on the level that uh, Sugar Ray Leonard did. But yeah, man, I mean, certainly the movie Solitary Man. And, and I do think that, um, I mean, you know, Rounder, Solitary Man and Billions are probably the things that are the truest expression of what David and I do. And they so those things is complete works but i'd say man you know the feeling of flying sometimes just happens if you show up every day and do the work and when it happens you know as a writer it's a glorious thing personally i don't it's a feeling you know uh you're barely tethered to the earth but you're somehow hyper present and it's what we show up and do it for i, I wonder also it struck me when I met you and talked with you that you having Paul Giamatti as a, a character to write for, yes. that you guys seem very similar in bearing. Like your People say, I know, in our voices and stuff. I, I, yeah, it's a great thing. It's a great thing. I love the guy. He's incredible. Um, I don't like really. Avatar or something? I don't know. I can't speak. I mean, people will say it about our voices, but I, it's not something I'm that conscious of. Interesting. Brian, thank you so much for today. It was a lot of fun talking hey, to you. My absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Tourist Information. The producers for this show are George Alarcon Swaby and myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler. Thanks for listening. <laughs>